Hello, this is your host, Paul Harvey. I am taking a little break this week. So I thought to share with you a previous show because I think it's actually quite poignant at the moment what with Queen Elizabeth passing last week. And there are people in the world who are feeling grief at the loss of someone who was rather not someone they knew, but someone who was very poignant in their lives. And I think that kind of keys into our own sense of grief and loss or the potential for it. So this programme was released last year. It's with Carol Henderson and it's called Beyond Grief. I hope you find something useful in it and we'll be back on Sunday. My name is Paul Harvey and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people, and what I have discovered is that our story is everything. Because what we do, feel, or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? People to know that you don't have to live in agony through grief forever. So although the loss will always be there, you can heal your heart and live again, not just merely exist. And and to come back to your passion question, that's what I'm really passionate about, Paul, is helping people live, not just function. And having been there in that, just plodding through the day, waiting to go to sleep because it blanks out a few hours, I don't ever want to have to be there again. And my heart breaks for anyone that's stuck there and then don't know that there's an option and and a way to help themselves out of that. What lies beyond grief? I have said this many times on the podcast and in other places, we're not getting out of this world alive. At some point, everyone dies, no matter how much we try to avoid it, it is a fact. At that point, someone else gets left behind. The real question is how do we, as the person left behind, learn to live with it and how do we move on? This week is Grief Awareness Week in the UK and my guest Carol Henderson knows quite a bit about that. Not only has she learned to live with her own grief, she's also discovered how to mourn well and support others to do the same. But more importantly, as a grief recovery educator and heart healer, the message she brings to us is that there are many forms of grief. From the devastating sudden loss of someone right down to the grief we experience when the last chocolate in the box has been eaten. Carol married the love of her life when she was 20 years old. She relocated her job and left her family home to be with Kevin, who was 21. Together, they built an amazing life with nice toys, holidays and a big house. And inspired by their careers and happy life, they chose to forego children. And then at just 41, Kevin died of cancer after a very short illness. Carol had taken redundancy to look after him. When he was gone, she was a widow at 41, with no job and living in a big house miles from friends and family. Our conversation is Carol's story, and at the same time we unpack what it means to experience grief and loss, and her journey to become a grief recovery educator. No matter who you are, at some point in life you will have faced grief in some form or another. But there is life on the other side. Carol found a new life, a new man and a new purpose, so I can promise you a happy ending. Join me on this educational journey about what it truly means to live well beyond grief. Hello and welcome to another programme. I'm delighted to be with Carol Henderson. 
And as always, there's a story to be unpacked. So Carol, thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. Hi, Paul. I'm extremely excited to be here today. Thank you for having me. So look, this is life, passion and business. Where did it all start for you? What did you think you were going to be when you were small? Well, when I was very small, I thought I was going to be a ballerina. I think in uh, common with just about every other little girl in the nineties. I've had a lot. I've had a lot of different answers in that one. <laughs> yeah, um, but as I got older, actually, what I really wanted to be was a pilot. Um, and I remember a lot of my friends wanting to be air hostesses. I don't think they're called that anymore. Air hostesses, stewardesses, and I didn't want to be the hostess. I wanted to be up front and in charge of where the plane was going. Um, so I remember my physics teacher kind of scoffing at the idea. Um, my optician said, mm, I don't know your eyesight's going to be up to it. So there were a lot of... Um, and, and it, sounds lot of as, it sounds as if you actively pursued the idea, what we're checking with well, I, I, I talked to the opticians about what the requirements were. I talked to the RAF. I thought maybe that would be a way to, to and in those days, uh, women couldn't do that. Um, you know, a little while ago now. Um, and so I looked at various ways of becoming either a commercial pilot or, and I really loved the idea of international travel and, um, but being the one that was, given the direction, if you like, taking mm. oh. And I left school and went work for a bank. So. <laughs> okay. That was a, that was a, a, a um, yeah. Okay. You know, I think, do you know what, looking back, there are an awful lot of people telling me you can't do that. Mm. An awful lot of people telling me you can't do that. And you're probably not up to that and you wouldn't be able to handle the stress. And there was a, and I'm sure a lot of well-meaning um, but probably unhelpful advice given. And then by the time I got to kind of exam age and I was doing my O-levels, and which was the early 80s, and at that point the economy was in a pretty horrible shape and there was an awful lot of talk about O-levels and A-levels and university degrees being a waste of time and uh, you really needed actual work experience to get anywhere. And that was the kind of the mood. So I actually left school halfway through my A-levels because this was so the message that was being given that A-levels and university is a waste of time getting to the job market that I just left school and found the first job that came along, which was being a bank clerk. And I was utterly miserable as a bank clerk. And it took me a long time to find my own way after mm. it. And it took decades probably to work out that listening to other people wasn't really serving me and I needed to start listening to myself a bit more um so it's it has been a very uh, very interesting career trajectory starting as a as a bank clerk then i sort of fell into selling selling advertising space in the local rag and from that ended up with a marketing career which i thoroughly enjoyed um until probably the early 2000s various flavors of marketing career and then there was the big life event that changed everything um so that? by that yeah well by that point um i was married i got married age 20 to a fabulous guy called kevin but in 2006 uh tragically he died he was 41 years old and had skin cancer and while i was caring for him i also took redundancy 
So at the point he died, I had no job, mm. no kids, because we'd planned not to have kids, because um, we both were loving our careers at the minute, and Kevin never felt grown up enough to be a dad. And, and um, so it was one of those things. It was a choice. We didn't have kids. We had no pets because we both had a career and we didn't have time for pets. So at the point he died, I had no man, no job, no kids, no pets. And it absolutely felt like there was nothing anchoring me to the earth other than this stupid big house that we bought because we'd liked where it was and it was way too big for two of us. And it was stupid big for just me. Do you have family me. around you? Do you have other family around you? Well, my mum was not far away. She was in Stevenage, which is about 30 miles and um, a brother in London. Mm. Um, so, And I did have, um, you know, good friends. I had a good kind of support network. But I did feel incredibly incredibly alone but at the end of the day isn't it that you know support networks and friends are wonderful but at some point you have to come in and close the door don't you absolutely and, and you have, to, I sit, remember and you have to sit down in your house look at your room and, and everything in that house reminds you of, of the man you just lost absolutely everything everything and everyone people always go on about the clothes and the stuff it's not the clothes it's the little personal items like um opening a drawer and and finding a post-it note that's got his handwriting on or whatever the thing is. So it, it is everywhere. And the stuff that you'd stopped seeing as theirs because it's been on the walls for years and suddenly you start noticing it again. So, um, and someone described it perfectly when they said it's quite easy to find something to, someone to do something with. It's quite hard to find someone to do nothing with. And as you said, Ooh, that, yeah. it is that Sunday night when you shut the door and you know, maybe you found someone to, you know, do a bit of shopping with in the afternoon or, or or go and have a cup of tea with. But at some point, you have to shut the door and be on your own. And um, particularly as I lived in this tiny little hamlet, which had eight houses, a church and school. Um, so when you shut the door, um, there was no street lights. It was in winter, you know, dark, and you couldn't see any evidence of other human life at all. And I felt incredibly cut off. And um, I had no idea what to do with myself, or to be honest, because I'd never had ambitions really to have my own business. I was quite happily being employed. But at the point um, I took redundancy, I was working for an event and motivation agency. Um, so uh, I had planned to set up my own motivation agency. Now, as a recently widowed woman, you can imagine I, was, I couldn't motivate my own way out of a paper bag. Yeah, I can imagine motivation was not high on your list of things to do. Can I actually get dressed today, let alone, you know, think about starting a business and getting out there and selling my myself, my services? Mm. Um, so it was just, I had no clue. I, I was just overwhelmed. Um, but what I realized was I didn't really want to go and help motor manufacturers sell more cars anymore. I wanted to do something that had a bit more meaning because you do, when these big life events happen, you do sit and reevaluate what your priorities are and what is truly important. I thought, well, um, Kev died of skin cancer, which is the most curable form of cancer there is. If it's caught early, it's 98% treatable. Unfortunately, his wasn't caught early. And if it's ignored, um, if it's not picked up, then it's 98% fatal. So um, he 
when when we were looking for ways to help him and you when when the doctor says go home and write you will you don't what you do is you go home and hit the internet and go are they right so we've done a lot of research in ways to slow it down mitigate etc so we started looking at all the you know diet stuff and the holistic stuff and all the frankly weird and wacky and downright scary stuff that's out there in the internet um but i'd got very interested in um food as medicine nutrition healing so um that was already there we'd done that while i was caring for him and then not that long after he died my mum wasn't feeling very well and she asked me if I could find someone to do a food intolerance test because she felt that she was things that she was eating weren't agreeing with her she'd worked that out for herself so I did some research and I found this place offering food intolerance testing and trained to be a food intolerance tester mm. Mm. so it was a two-day course I thought <clears throat> I can concentrate for two days I, I'm pretty sure I can do a two-day course so I did the two-day course, um, got the machine, and um, and then it dawned on me. I said, "Let's start a business." Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, um, it's not just oh, I've got the stuff. People are magically going to turn up. I have to market this thing. So I started doing that, and then I also started a nutritional therapy course. And I discovered that working with people, while I couldn't obviously can't cure cancer, but what I could do is help alleviate IBS and eczema and other things that are making people's lives more uncomfortable than they needed to be. Mm -hmm. And that kind of inspired me to start really working with other human beings, you know, on a much more one-to-one -one human level. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Meanwhile, dealing with my own crap still, you know, being a, a fairly new widow and incredibly lonely and all that stuff. And then by chance, I was... Um, and I was actually reading an Amazon book review. Thank the universe for Amazon book reviews. Because mm. I was reading this review that said, this book's okay, but it's not as good as the Grief Recovery Handbook. Okay, obviously, Grief Recovery Handbook. And um, it looked pretty good. So I, I ordered it and I had to buy a used one from the US because they didn't stock them here then. And it came two weeks later. And it was the first thing that had made sense since Kevin had died. Mm. Um, and I looked and they, they, this book talked about people called grief recovery specialists that will take you through this grief recovery methodology. And I'm like, okay, there weren't any because they're all in America. So it's written as a self-help book. So I did it. I worked through it with a friend and it helped me enormously. And it was a real catalyst for me moving on and growing my business because I was suddenly in a much better place emotionally. Scroll forward a couple of years, I had occasion to reread it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I found their website that said, you can train in this thing. So I emailed them and said, I'm from the UK. Which city has your best trainer? Because I'm coming in. I, I have to do this training. And they said, oh, you don't have to. We're coming to London in the fall. And I was like, oh, well, I quite would have liked an excuse to fly to California. Thank you very much. But okay, you're, you guys are coming to London. I'll, I'll sign up. And they didn't come to London. They came to Heathrow, which as all Brits know, Heathrow isn't actually London. Um, but because it close, meant a two-hour drive. Close enough. Close enough, I guess. Well, it is, except for, London. For, for, yeah, for an American, it's close enough. It was <laughs> a two-hour car drive from where I was living. So... Um, I did the training with one of the founders, Russell Friedman, and um, 
a conversation between him and I on that course. And then um, just a few weeks later, he said, would you bring this to the UK for us? And I said, Russell, I've been doing this for like five minutes. <laughs> and he said, Carol, we said, we love your energy. We really want you to bring grief recovery to the UK. So that was 2009. And um, so then I worked with Russell and the other founder, John James, who trained me to train grief recovery specialists and help other people move beyond significant loss. And it's been the most incredible, heartbreaking, challenging, fabulous, appalling journey since then. And I've trained over 500 people from 30 countries to do this work. And so this is Something a really silly I, question, but I'm going to have to ask it because it's part of my formula, but that, it kind of how, how, how I could ask this question of this thing, but I'm going to have to because it's just making me laugh even thinking about it. Where's the passion in all of that? Where's the passion? <laughs> <laughs> how can I be passionate about this? How can I be passionate about watching people's hearts heels in front of my eyes? Yeah, uh, well, that's it, isn't it, really? It's, it's, it's what you're doing, it. yeah, that's it, isn't it? It... But, it the magical thing is, Paul, and it's really hard to articulate this very elegant little program, which is not therapy. It's it's not counselling. It's it's its own thing. And we actually call it education. So we're teaching people a set of steps to heal their own heart. So I'm a guide in this. I'm a teacher. I'm not a therapist or a clinician or, or any of that still. I'm just saying, look, here's some tools. They've helped me. They've helped lots of other people. They might help you. And it's incredibly empowering. And I think that's why 10 plus years on, it's still fabulous. Because I think if I was not empowering people, I might have got kind of more fed up with it by now. But watching people take their own healing journey and realize that while the loss is there forever, the grief doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. It's just the most extraordinary feeling. And I and I've work with people that have had horrific losses, violent losses, multiple losses. Um, and I've heard so much tragedy, which on some days does mean that I want to pick up the car keys and say I quit. Because there are some days you think I can't hear any more of this tragic stuff. And you just go, I quit. And in grief, we always refer that to that as the uh, car key moment. It's really quite hard to do when you work from home. Doesn't work. No, doesn't work. Really. <laughs> but you know, and I, I have a strange view. I have a strange view on this sort of stuff. You see, because I, 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 I kind of like, oh, it's the way it is. Hmm. You know, like people say, it shouldn't happen. I go, no, but it's the way it is. That's just hmm. it. You know, the you know, the universe don't care. The universe is what it is, and and things happen. Buildings fall down, cars crash, cars crash, people get sick. That's what happens, and, and it's and you know, and it happens to any of us, you know. And and I'm you know, I've no doubt something like something like that will happen to me at some stage. It happens to all of us. It does happen to all of us, and it happens to all of us multiple times. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. I've got yeah, absolutely. My son left home last year. I didn't expect to be grieving it. <laughs> and I was <laughs> absolutely, and I, and um, I actually there's a, a gentleman I I trained who was really struggling after his offspring left home. I can't remember actually if it was son or daughter, 
I remember it's offspring because I said, well, empty nest isn't just a chick thing. You know, it it happens to men as well. And well, because uh, I lost my best mate. I mean, he and I have this amazing relationship and we were, I mean, and the lockdown provided us an amazing opportunity to spend lots mm. of time together. We cooked together. We had a, and, and our relationship was already, already strong. So, you know, when he going to go, I know he's got to go. I want him to go. I really want him to go. And I moved him into his flat a couple of weeks ago, but it's like, because <laughs> it's changed the nature of your relationship forever and i think one of the the things that really resonated with me when i read that book all those years ago was the definition of grief being the conflicting feelings following a change or end in a familiar pattern of behavior so exactly what you described Please for him, he's flying the nest, he's growing up, he's making his own way in the world. Your job is done, you've been successful, well done. But you're sad he's not gonna be right there and, and your relationship will change. You're still gonna be mates, you're still gonna be close, but he's not right there. So that change or and that end in those familiar patterns of behavior is resulted in those up and down. And I think that's one of the reasons grief is, can be so overwhelming is you feel opposite things at the exact same moment. I think people also don't get, uh, yeah, because you get this in other parts of life, but people don't see it as grief. So I, I, rem I remember being involved in amateur dramatics when I was in my teens and my, my, my 20s. And so we would put like, you know, like 20, 15, 20 weeks into this production and it would be the race of the show and you'd get the show done. You go to the artist your party and the day after you felt like absolute crap. Yeah. Because suddenly all this thing you've been doing for the last 20 weeks is gone. Finished. And, and the people and are gone. People you met are gone. <laughs> And we grieve all loss. We grieve everything exactly as you just said. So, uh, and sometimes people get really quite shirty and, and defensive about that. And the way I explain it is when we talk about, I love my husband, I love my job, mm. I love my friends, I love steak, uh, or whatever your thing is. No one ever says, well, you know, it's not the same as love for us. So I know because everyone knows that that romantic love is different to your love for steak or your love for your job. But somehow, as soon as it's grief, it can only mean somebody died. Well, it's not true. There are as many types of grief as there are types of love. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when something ends, we grieve it. Even, even that moment, you know, where you go for that um, last chocolate in the box and it's not there because <laughs> yes. you had actually really in the last one. And it's like, oh, um, which is mostly disappointment. But that, you know, that's a little grieving event right there. And actually, of course, Rolo made a very successful advertising campaign out of the whole, would yes, you give some last, your last one? Yes, because yes. we recognise that feeling of, oh, I thought I had one more. <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that ending thing, we grieve all loss. I mean, redundancy, I guess, is a grieving process as well, oh, isn't it? Because, you're, because you're now being rejected. So you've got, you, you, and you can't go back. So there's a loss there. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> all that loss of familiarity, your co-workers, the yeah. patterns of behaviour are there. Retirement, another grief event. Even if you're really looking forward to being able to play as much golf as you want or whatever your thing is, your co-workers aren't there, your routines aren't there, you've got to rebuild. Um, so even positive events. So... I remember when I married Kevin back in 1986 and he was 21 and I was 20 and um, we managed to get a council house in Milton Keynes on the strength of his job 
and it and it had come through two weeks before the wedding so we, we just had this empty council house so we got married so I moved from Stevenage to Milton Keynes so I left home got married and my transfer because I was still working for the bank at that point came through so I left Stevenage branch and went to a Milton Keynes branch everything in my life changed on that day everything and afterwards I couldn't understand why I was miserable when I got everything I wanted which was my own home and the man I loved well, yeah, now course, I realised yeah. I was grieving my Stevenage home life my Stevenage home my co-workers at in Stevenage everything had changed familiar pattern of behaviours had all changed out of all recognition and it took me a long time to adjust to that and I now know it was grief and I think if more people could just use the right word grief because if you use the right words then you could use the right behaviours to do something about it mm. well if you're just calling it stress or depression or, or whatever misdiagnose you mistreat mm. So one of my missions is helping people realize, yeah, we grieve all loss. And, and it's not about comparing. It's not saying that, you know, I'm a bit sad I didn't get that last chocolate because actually my husband swooped in and ate it before. <laughs> it's, of course, it's not the same as somebody dying. In the same way, saying I love chocolate is not the same as saying I love my husband. We just need to get our head around that it can all work and no one's minimizing anyone else's pain when we use those words. Mm. That's kind of my side mission is getting people to realize that grief is everywhere. And if we acknowledge it as such, look at what we've had in this last year. Massive loss of connection, loss of social life, loss of normality, loss of safety, feeling safe just mm. to nip to the shops. So, so massive loss. And um, someone referred to grief as the shadow pandemic. And I, and I think they're onto something there that we've got lots and lots of unresolved grief milling around and no one's calling it that. So there's, we're going to be through some turbulent times, I think coming as the emotional fallout of everything that's gone on in the last 18 months starts to, to catch up with us, uh, which is why I'm, I'm very much about helping people realize that these feelings that they don't know what to do with are grief and they're normal. Mm. not faulty they're normal so going back to your story your situation obviously you started doing all this stuff what happened what changed to you how did your life unfold from there um well it the interesting thing the grief recovery really helped me um re-engage with life rather than just existing day after day did you keep the so big I, house did you keep the big house keep the big house I did keep the big house. And I thought about moving to a much smaller house. And then just the thought of moving on my own was fairly horrific. So I'd, I'd play with the idea of moving and then well, I like my neighbours and I like, like the house and, and everything. Mm. Um, so for a few years, and I, 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 I basically learned how to be on my own because I left home and got married at, at 20. So I didn't have, I didn't live on my own at any point. No. So I, I part of that, transition if you like was learning how to be an adult on my own because I've never done that before mm. um and also heaven help us start then thinking about well you know I'm only 40 I like men I like male company I'd quite like to meet someone else and the reality is I'm going to have longer without him than I had with him I, I do want to meet someone else oh my god 
dating in the 21st century. <laughs> that's a whole different podcast, Paul, I have to say. that. That's, oh, what, what is it that makes men on dating sites just hold giant fish and think that's sexy? I can tell you guys, if you're listening, it really isn't. Anyway, so the whole dating thing was a living nightmare. But anyway, I kind of stumbled my way through that. And actually, for a couple of years, I, I went through a period of, I didn't date anybody. I'd kind of had my fingers burned badly. I learned how to be on my own, enjoy being on my own and have my own space in this stupid big house. Um, and then um, someone who I'd met through business networking, uh, who'd become a supplier, so, you know, we had a meeting and it was just like, hang on a minute. So um, I invited him for dinner. Wonderful. Um, and uh, Ian, so as a, a result of that kind of a relationship blossomed and in 2015, we got married. Hmm. The year before we got married, we did move house. I did sell the house because um, it was one of those situations where I thought it was my house. And Ian thought it was Kevin's house. Yes. So um, I thought, you know what? New life, new start. So sold house, um, bought smaller house. Um, so, yeah, I've now been married for, to Ian for six years. I'm, I feel incredibly fortunate to have met another fantastic guy to be with. Very different, obviously. Um, and so he now works... Uh, full-time in Grief UK for me. He, his losses included his business at, due to lockdown last year. He was running a forest school, mm. Um, mm. which obviously shut and we've never reopened it. And he was also at the same time had, because um, I met him because he was a graphic designer. So he was doing my graphic design for me. He'd left that to do the forest school. That was his dream. And um, so February 2020, talk about bad timing, had decided he was going to start another new graphic design business as well as the Forest School. A little bit mindful of not getting any younger and this thing's quite physically <laughs> demanding. Mm, yeah. So started a, a graphic design business again and because it was fledgling and then no one wanted to see anything and everyone, all small businesses were going clamping down yeah. on the spending, that stopped as well. Um, fortunately for us, um, grief recovery Huge, started to do really well in the pandemic because yes, yes. people were a were becoming much more aware that there was going to be this huge need for people to help people with bereavement and loss and partly there were quite a few people on my database that said carol i've wanted to do your course for years i've never had the time and now i'm on furlough and um i'd like to do it now please so we went mad busy so ian came to work for for grief uk full-time so now we work full time together, which is amazing. I feel very privileged. So we are now both um, working towards getting more people to know that you don't have to live in agony through grief forever. So although the loss will always be there, you can heal your heart and live again, not just merely exist. And, and to come back to your passion question, that's what I'm really passionate about, Paul, is helping people live, not just function. And having been there in that, just plodding through the day, waiting to go to sleep because it blanks out a few hours. Um, and 
I don't ever want to have to be there again. And my heart breaks for anyone that's stuck there and then don't know that there's an option and, and a way to help themselves out of that. Um, and I really noticed the difference um, six years ago. It was actually two months before I got married. My mum passed away. Mm. And I was very close to mum. And um, so she had an aortic aneurysm. Um, and they said it would burst and kill her. She'd refused surgery because if she, when she came out from surgery, she'd have to go into a nursing home and she wouldn't be able to go home again. She'd, mm -mm. no, this thing can kill me. I'm not going into a nursing home. But what actually happened was it didn't burst and kill her, it ruptured. So um, we were actually looking after her for nine days before it eventually killed her. And she was like, you're not to cancel the wedding, mum. I'll decide whether I cancel the wedding or not. No, I don't want you to. So we had all this, but I had nine days to talk to her. And because of everything I'd learned in grief recovery, which is you need to say everything that's going on in your heart. By the time she died, I, I told her everything. And I told her everything that I needed to say. And I thanked her for everything that she'd given me. And we said goodbye. And she passed very peacefully at home, surrounded by loved ones. So she had a beautiful death, mm. which I was very pleased about. And afterwards, I was incredibly, incredibly sad because I really miss her. I, re I still miss her. Six years on, I still miss her. I miss her wisdom. I miss her cake. I miss her hugs, all of that. But I'm not grieving. Do you remember that definition? I said conflicting feelings. Mm. I don't have conflicting feelings. I have simple feelings that are sadness that she's no longer here. And before she died, I could not have articulated to you the difference. Grief, which was agony because of all the, like with Kevin relieved, he wasn't suffering anymore. Um, despair, he wasn't here anymore. All that kind of conflicting stuff. That's what caused the agony. And, but because I'd got to say and deliver all my emotional communications to mum, I was peaceful with it. She got the death she wanted. She was at home. Mm -hmm. So there was no conflict. It was just beautiful. So I'm sad she's gone. I miss her. Grief recovery don't cure loneliness, okay? Because it's not possible. But what it did do is mean that I haven't, you know, got this heartache around mum not being anymore. I'm, I'm just sad, but I can talk about her and laugh. I can talk about her and cry. It depends what mood I'm in on the day. But I haven't got any pain. Well, I think, and that's I think it's fascinating about this sort of stuff is that um, I was never, this podcast started as a result of my father passing. And it wasn't about me being sad for his passing. It was about me recognizing where he was and the fact that he was unhappy with living. And I, and I recognized I was very similar. And I thought, mm. whoa, I've got 30 more years or so to go. If it's, if it's as bad as this for the next 30 years, I can understand why dad went the way he did, because I ain't going to get any better. So this is why I started exploring it. But one thing about it is it's, I never had that great a relationship with my father. We were always quite distant with each other. Um, he, he, we just didn't really connect on some level. I, didn't, I, don't, I understood him, I don't, he understood me. But I have a much, because of what I did with the podcast and everything else, I, I kind of have a different relationship with my dad now. It's really strange. That stuff, um, it? <clears throat> it, it, it's kind of, I get why I use the word strange, but also to me, it's like normal. Um, well, yeah, but it's, so, it's like, I never thought I'd have this. So, so now it's like, I, I, you know, when, he, when he passed, because I got, you know, I cleared his house out. And so I've got a garage for the tools and bits and pieces. And every time I pick one of these tools, I go, thanks, Dad. You know, and I have a conversation with him with this tool that I'm using. And, and I think of him using it, you know, and it's like, and I can get quite emotional when I think about that. So I understand what you say about that relationship with your mum. 
And and here's the thing, because the relationship continues, mm. as you've just said, and it changes and evolves, even though they've been gone however long, because they're still there in our hearts, we carry them forever. Um, and I think what, A, what grief recovery has taught me is A, is to, to say it while you get the chance. But also, if there's things that you haven't said when you got the chance, they can still be said afterwards. And that's what the grief recovery method does, is allow us to say things that we didn't get to say. And the other thing that I've really learned that's important is that we can grieve what we refer to as less than loved ones. Because, you know, this whole this whole thing of, um, like you just said, you didn't have a fabulous relationship with your dad, but there's still grief there. Hmm. Some people have incredibly, incredibly appalling relationships with people that should have been loving that weren't, and then get flawed when they died because there's big overwhelming feelings. And I like, well, it can't be grief because I hated him. I didn't love him, I hated him. But back to that definition, conflicting <clears throat> feelings following a change or end in a familiar pattern behavior, then gives those people who had difficult relationships permission to feel how they feel because it's not about love at all. It's about conflicting feelings, undelivered communications. And as soon as they die, it ends you of the possibility of reconciliation or, yeah, you can't or even the ability to thump them one because that's what you always wanted to do and you never got around to it. And now that, no, you can't. Um, I've had um, clients say that they really frustrated that dad died before they got the chance to, to really tell them what they thought in a negative way, not in a loving way. So it's all of that. It, it's um, grief isn't the price of love. Grief is undelivered communications of an emotional nature and a normal human feeling that we all experience after anything. We lose anything. I also guess some of the reasons why there's so much difficulty with this nowadays is that we've lost touch with death. Oh, gosh. We've, yeah. we've so lost touch with it. I, I would imagine 100 years ago, everybody knew someone died this week. Mm. You know, 100 years ago, no, more than 100 years ago. I mean, you're know, talking like the early, early, you know, the late 1800s. Death was such a part of life. It was a daily, a daily occurrence, and you knew someone had died. Oh, someone's died this week. Oh, yeah. And everyone would be dealing with someone's death constantly. So, and I don't know whether they dealt with it any better than we do now, because they wouldn't have some of the understandings that we do, but it was normal. It was more normal, <clears> and it was, as you're right, it's much more part of everyday life. What happens is now hardly anyone dies at home anymore. It used to be that people... I don't know how it worked. They worked it out because they would have the big wake, wouldn't they? Their body would be somewhere, and everyone would be howling around the body. They would really process the emotions around it. Yeah, and physically see the yes. body. So the whole thing around disbelief, because you've seen, seen the body right there, where now death almost always happens in hospital, um, as if it's an abnormal thing, you know, but actually death is inevitable. We are all going to die as much as yeah, we Yeah, we're not going to get out of this world alive, are we? No, we're not getting out of here alive. Um, <laughs> so, but it happens in hospital, and then they're swept away, <sighs> almost instantly and taken taken away and then delivered to the funeral home and many relatives just don't see them mm. next that they they see someone in hospital bed and then they see a box so yes this whole and then it's not talked about 
And this whole thing about, you know, everything has to be positive. So the, the other thing that I struggle with, this is my sort of like pet peeve at the minute, because there's been some TV adverts for some large chains of funeral homes, you know, that are all about, um, oh, it's a life celebration and, you know, we're celebrating life and, you know, it's going to be a party and, and which is fantastic if they lived to 90 odd and had a full and fulfilling life and, you know, died peacefully at home. But frankly, there are some occasions where you can't celebrate. Um, you know, when my husband, he was 41. I was not in the mood for celebrating. So while we honoured his life and his existence, the idea that anyone would tell me don't wear black was anathema to me. So when we when we threw out these old traditions of, you know, deep mourning, you know, you wore widow's weeds black for however long, and then you would move to lilac and greys before moving to a brighter tint, you know, there was this prescribed timeline on, on the colours you could wear. Um, all of that, uh, we, I think we chucked the baby out with the bathwater when we did away with a lot of those customs. Because again, it, it's about giving people permission to say, I actually, when I was first widowed, wanted, you know, the old, in the old days, the, the guy with the red flag in front of the motor car. I felt I needed someone in front of me with a flag waving going, look out, grieving person, be careful. Mm. Because... If you, even now, people now you don't get to wear black afterwards. You barely even get to wear black at the funeral because this whole trend for oh, it's got to be positive, it's got to be a life celebration. So allow people to be what it needs to be for them. Mm. Message: Don't because in the Jewish right. tradition, don't they? The Jewish they 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 tear clothes, don't they? They have they do something like that. Um, I'm not sure about that. There's lots of talking. In most cultures, there's lots of sitting around and talking about the person who died for a, a prescribed amount of time, um, which is healthy, sharing memories, good and bad. Uh, and again, it's about communicating, isn't it? It's about talking um, about how we feel, but equally, you know, now it seems to be, you've got to put a brave face on it and, which has always been around, stiff up a lip and all that. Got to be strong, got to put a brave face on it. And there's constant pressure to be positive. Mm. And that's just another thing to deal with on top of all your grief as well. So it sounds like um, you've got a thriving project in front of you, with you. How do you measure success in something like this in your life? Well, no, twice. How do you measure success in that? And then I'll add more, add more okay. to that conversation. Well, essentially, I run a training company. That. At the end of the day, I run training courses. The training course happens to be in how to be a grief recovery specialist, and those people go and take people through the grief recovery method. So I measure success by how many training courses I'm filling. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, this year, last year, I trained almost double the number of people that I trained the year before. So I'm calling myself successful mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, I have... Um, a second trainer i trained her a few years ago i'm currently training the third trainer so we're growing so that's how i measure the success of that is in how many specialists we are training so that more people get help the, the mission globally because i do this under license from the us the global mission is greatest number of grievers help shortest possible time mm. the more people i train the more people i help indirectly 
So, what does success mean to you, though? Because that, that's a financial success. That's a, that's a company success, a global company success. What about you? Success Karen? means um, peace. I have a peaceful heart. Um, so the, the business success means that um, I'm kind of quite peaceful with the way I'm spending my days. Mm. Um, really, the uh, success is I have a great relationship with Ian. Mm. Um, and even though we work together, I do. he does have his own office. I couldn't have him in the same room all day. That would drive me insane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how do people work together? Oh, we don't work that closely together. So um, in the evenings, so we have, uh, I have some special friends. I have, you know, like most people, decimated social life at the minute. But I have a lovely home, um, lovely pets. We've got three dogs between us that I adore. So for me, it's this peace and I am comfortable in my own skin because I'm spending my days doing something that makes a difference to other people's lives and I have a great relationship. Um, so really that's where I'm successful is because I have good friends and good relationships around me and it's peaceful heart. That's the two words I think sums it up, but there's nothing, yeah, we all have niggles, you know, and there are frustrations and all those things that happen in, you know, in business, you know, like, today because we had a a flood at the office at christmas you know the insurance coming up for renewal and that's all proving a little bit challenging you know so you just know you get an insurance claim that's how much your premium is going to go up by <laughs> so those sorts of daily irritations but actually that surface yes. under that i'm pleased with where my business is i'm pleased with where my relationship is i'm pleased with where my life is mm. it's peaceful how do you see your contribution to the world? It's an obvious question and an obvious answer, but I would put it out there for you. Um, my contribution to the world is anyone that just realises that they don't have to struggle in silence as a result of something I've done, then I've been successful. And that's my contribution, mm -hmm. is to help a few hundred or a few thousand more people have more peaceful hearts than they would have done otherwise had I not done this work. Mm. Do you have a contribution to yourself? Um, I think it's in following my passion mm. and, and I remember when I hit my thirties, you know, and I, and I had this fabulous career and, a, a, and I think at the time I, I was in the top 7% of female earners, which sounds fantastic until you put it in context of top earners and then suddenly you take men's salary and <laughs> nowhere. Um, but nevertheless, I had a flipping good material lifestyle yeah. in my thirties. So it was one of the, and we had the big house and had the convertible Mercedes, you know, I had all the material stuff and I wasn't happy. Mm. And that's, I think, why when this big thing happened, I, I, I identified that what I really wanted was food for my soul, not food for my bank account. Mm. And that's what I have now is food for my soul. And um, I'm, you know, very fortunate, you know, I've got a nice roof over my head, blah, blah, blah. But my soul is being fed on a daily basis. And if it ever stops doing that, this work, I will stop. 
Mm. I have to say this work does does that for me. I get I get fed every day when I'm doing this sort of work when I'm having these conversations. And that's isn't that a fantastic feeling? Oh yeah. When I say this to someone, this is my day job. I kind of go, <laughs> I have to pinch myself. <laughs> It's like, how did I do this? How do I? Someone's going to catch me soon. Can't be real. And you know, it took a long, long time before the business was financially stable. Hmm. You know, know, I I had a lot of years where I was, you know, I was paying the company, not the company paying me. And I was putting money into it for years. And we've only really in the last couple of years turned that corner, so Hmm. they can actually pay me for Hmm. a change. But it didn't matter. And there were times where I, I seriously got close to closing the doors. Very, very, very close. And a couple of years ago, in one January, I, you know, within millimetres of going, enough. And it was only Ian saying, you can't stop, you're too good at this. And I went, I don't want to be good at this anymore. And he's like, yeah, but you're too good at it. Keep going, it will come. And without that, I would have stopped. Yeah. So I haven't done this on my own. No, you know. But we don't do this. Uh, it's, it's it's all about opportunity to, to to grow and work with people, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and the message you're spread and the message you're spreading is 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 a priceless message. I mean, you know, you're you're doing you're doing positive good in the world because what the work that you do doesn't just it's not just about grief counselling or grief grief. It's about everything in life. It's about living a good life in a way. Absolutely, because if you've got a peaceful heart, everything changes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you if you if you're if you're dragging around a load of unresolved grief, you you, you can't be peaceful. Yeah. You can't be peaceful. So yeah. I want to give people peace, and it's a joy to give people peace. So my next question is is the feeder question, but, I mean, but because it's that question that you get to to set effectively. So what you know, what is the one question I didn't ask you? That's what you could ask. Or you, what is the one question you want people to ask you? How is this different to traditional ways? That's a nice doing. question, actually. Yeah, how is it? Because because a lot of people go into grief counselling, as I remember it being called, or some kind of grief therapy. What grief what is therapy. different? What's the difference? The key difference is therapy is amazing for um, discovering why you feel stuck or why you feel a certain way, and it's a great way to explore your feelings and and look at them and understand how you got to where you are. And, and, and so therefore you can kind of work your way forwards. Yeah. And kind of what, what I've called discovery, discovering why I feel the way I feel in grief recovery. It's more of the starting point is I know why I feel bad. Something bad happened. Mm. And so instead of exploring and analyzing what we're saying is okay you're having these feelings which are normal because something bad happened here's a set of steps that you can take in order to resolve those unresolved feelings and move forward with the rest of your life so it's teaching a life skill Mm. and i refer to it as driving lessons for your heart so it's a life skill and then once you've got it you can use it again and again and again for when the next loss happens. That last chocolate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or, or whatever the thing is. So you've got that. You've got that. You can, you know, no matter what happens, you can still drive your heart. Yes. Unlike the traditional route where you then go back and see your therapist. Yes. So therapy is fabulous for many, many things. So this is different. It serves a different function. 
So we're not competing with it or denigrating it in any way. I'm just saying this is a very different approach, which has meant that people who otherwise wouldn't get any help at all have had help and found peace. So um, what are you looking for from the podcast? What are you looking for people? You know, my, my listeners are are UK and Europe and US. So, so is it, do they get in touch with you or the organization? What are you looking for? Um, well, I'm, the main thing really is A, that people know we exist. The, th- the most heartbreaking thing for me is people saying, I wish I'd known about this years ago. Right. So now your listeners know we exist. Fantastic. If they yeah. want to know a bit more than that, absolutely can reach out. The Via the website, you can ring our office or book a call with me um, in my online diary, find out more about the method and how it can help them. Or if they're inspired to help others too, I can talk to them about how to do that. But my biggest motivation genuinely is education, letting people know that they don't have to suffer in pain in silence, that there is an alternative to the traditional talking therapies and they don't have to suffer if they don't want to. So how are they, there's a website for this? What would the website be? Yes, grieftheuk.org. Okay. And they can find you on social media? They can find me on social media. Um, Facebook is Grief Recovery UK. Yep. Instagram, I think we're Grief UK. Twitter, we're Grief UK. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well, Grief UK or Carol Henderson. So you can find me. You're everywhere. All those links, all those <laughs> links will be available at the website Life Passionate and Business, and they will be on this podcast app above me or below me. I can never remember where. So please do check out Carol Henderson because, um, gosh, she's amazing. She does does lovely work, and she's really nice to talk to as well. She's very easy to talk to. I have to say, good. I've enjoyed it as well. So, Carol, my last question, which is the big one, which which you know, mm. like, is the question that we all need to find an answer to maybe, or maybe we don't, I don't know. What's the meaning of life for you? The meaning of life, oh, that is the big one, isn't it? Um, and I show my age if I say 42. Oh, well, I, I, yeah, 42 has been all over this for years, I used to say 42. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I am a big Douglas Adams fan. Yeah, yeah. But for me, the um, meaning of life all comes down to your relationships. It's about, it's about living in connection with others. We are herd animals. We need to be around others. And then while there are times we need to be on our own, really it's about building not thousands of relationships that, you know, social media, I've got 5,000 friends, it's nonsense. It's about having a number of meaningful relationships that build that connection, that connect us to everyone else, to other humans. And that's what it's all about, is great relationships. And they take work. Mm. Um, And uh, one thing that the method has given me is an ability to um, have a great relationship with Ian because I've completed my relationship with Kevin so I'm not bringing stuff from that relationship into this one. So that meaning is all around my brother, my husband, my close friends, my colleagues here. I've got an amazing team here. I've got um, team three employees and then a kind of expanded freelance team as well. That's what's give my life meaning people. Hmm. 
Carol Henderson, thank you so much for um, sharing this image today. It's been a real joy to have this conversation. And um, thank you for the work that you do in the world, because I think it's incredibly valuable. You're extremely welcome. And thanks for talking to me. I've had an absolute ball as well this morning. All the best. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Carol Henderson. Now, if you'd like to connect with Carol, you can find her website at griefuk.org. She's also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. And all of those links, you can find them at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now, look, I know this is a sensitive subject, so do visit the website griefuk.org. There is an ebook resource there that is very helpful. Hopefully you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion, a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and a sense of what it all means, that is the path to a good life. Now look, you don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time, certainly any time that I can remember. And we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey, because we will not get it unless we choose it. So please give it some thought, because, you know, your future depends on it. And if you'd like some help with that process, do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions ebook and worksheets. Now this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery and it's at the amazing price of just $12.99. So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five-star review on the app of your choosing and, of course, sharing it with a friend because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it from me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best. <laughs>